Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Add a Snack, the podcast that aims to educate and inspire you at every step of your additive manufacturing journey. I am your host, Fabian Ahlefeld, and I lead the Additive Minds Consulting Team for EOS in North America. Today, I am joined by an all-star panel of guests to discuss a vital topic, and that is, what is the best way to identify your first part for additive manufacturing? As we'll learn from our guests today, additively manufactured parts can take many shapes, from steel parts on trains to coat hangers, from rugged tools on tactical vehicles all the way to components on electric supercars. And that's a wide variety of first applications. But no matter your industry and no matter your use case, there are consistent best practices that will help you to identify your first additive manufacturing part. And from there, you'll also need to consider how to select the best AM technology for your needs, how to choose the materials that you want to use and how to scale up your additive manufacturing production. So let's get started. Our guests today are ready to share their expert insights on all of these topics. And I am very excited to introduce them to you. So today we have with us Stephanie Brickbede, the head of additive manufacturing at Deutsche Bahn and the managing director of Mobility Ghost Additive. We have with us John Wilsinski, the executive director of America Makes. And we have with us Florian Lassan, a senior business development manager at Three of Minds. Let's hear a bit more about uh, what you guys do in your daily lives. And uh, yeah, I would like to start with you, Stephanie. What do you do as the head of additive manufacturing at Deutsche Bahn and the managing director of Mobility Goes Additive? And how do you manage these multiple roles in your daily yeah, it's always a big challenge. Uh, thank you very much, Fabian. Um, what we do at Deutsche Bahn, which is uh, one of Europe's leading railway companies, is we print spare parts. And within the last uh, five years since we started, end of 2015, we've printed more than 25,000 parts, which means more than 250 different use cases. And we do this uh, to help um, our trains running. Um, what um, I also do is uh, we initiated a network which is called MGA, which stands for Mobility and meanwhile also Medical Goes Additive. And we founded this exactly five years ago. And uh, with nine founding members today, we are nearly 140. And there you can also see everyone tries to figure out what might be the first parts. How can we accelerate the printing of parts and how can we learn from each other? And we don't want to do the same mistakes everyone else uh, had to go through before. So, and this is a great joy because we try to lower the hurdles of additive manufacturing. Awesome, super interesting. And we're all excited to hear more about what you have done in the past five years and how that applies to the audience out there today. John, can you give us a bit more background on uh, your position as the executive director at America Makes and what America Makes is? Absolutely, thank you. Uh, thanks to Three Your Mind and EOS for inviting us here, but a good good transition from Stephanie. We at America Makes are, are looking to do, I think some very similar things to what MGA is working on. So we, we have been founded um, back in 2012 to bring the additive community together. Ultimately, we're trying to, you know, working towards increasing the adoption. So very relevant topic to what we're talking about here today. How do we get more people to understand where it fits, how it fits, where to use it, when not to use it? And we do that primarily through three main pillars of our organization. And those are development of technology, development of the educational or kind of workforce community, and development of the ecosystem, meaning the community that's ultimately going to take the technology and do something with it, turn it into a, a product at the end of the day. And, you know, we've been working at it, you know, over the years, and we do that through um, a membership model. So in, in some ways similar, uh, we have about 225 members that make up you know, the community from academia, industry, both large and small, many government partners. And we work very closely, primarily on developing, you know, roadmaps. And uh, we use this, this phrase of convene, coordinate and catalyze, where we're trying to bring people together because we don't pretend we're, we're smarter than anyone else or we know the answer. So we, we use the community to identify where we should be working 
and then try to go set objectives to go work on it together as a community. So that that's kind of what we're up to. Awesome. Super interesting. And uh, of course, one of those uh, backbones on the adoption of additive manufacturing is uh, a software backbone. And uh, to talk about that, we have Florian here with us. Florian, can you tell us a bit more about uh, what you do and uh, uh, what Your Mind does? Sure. Also, thanks, uh, Fabi, for the introduction and welcome, everybody. So um, I'm responsible for the business development in the Central European market uh, at 3 Mind. And as 3 Mind, we are building uh, the digital threat of AM and uh, support companies in the workflow management of additive. And due to the special episode today, we want to focus a little bit more on how to find uh, suitable AM parts. And we strongly connect that question with our digital inventory solution. So we gather a lot of data from the company's portfolio uh, in joint projects, and then we evaluate which parts might be suitable for additive and which technologies uh, they can use to build those parts. Um, and on top of that, we, we connect um, the parts then with the part suppliers and also with the manufacturing execution system, so the production planning, and we provide software to manage that whole workflow. That's a really good transition into our first uh, major question, which is the first additive manufacturing part. And how did you find uh, these first additive manufacturing parts uh, many years ago? And I would like to start with you, John. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your first additive manufacturing part? I mean, before that, you were in a similar position to uh, our audience today. How did you stumble upon that first? Uh... Yeah, this is uh, so about 10 or 11 years ago. I was probably in the exact seat of somebody taking the poll that we just walked through. And the two that I would have flagged as the my biggest obstacles to adoption or even awareness would be First, lack of experience, absolutely, because I did not come from an additive background at all, not through education or research. I, I worked primarily in within the automotive supply chain at you know either tiered suppliers or at an OEM for most of my career, and it was not something I was exposed to. I then transitioned into the organization that I work for now, which is uh, effectively kind of an engineering consulting organization. And we were faced with a client that we were working with who happened to be, you know, within the U.S. government, and they were trying to identify opportunities. And, you know, this, the one that came in front of me was primarily a issue related to availability. So they, they had a component that they were producing as part of a, a reset of a um, land vehicle, tactical vehicle, and It was a component that they were conventionally manufacturing, something that was very well aligned to my background. So I knew quite a bit about how to, you know, set up the workflows and machine and how to, to move things along and gain efficiencies. But because of other issues within the supply chain, they wanted to explore additive. So um, I would say I certainly had a lack of experience, but I had the fortune of having, you know, colleagues within my organization who came from AM organizations in the past. So we had got connected with one of the uh, OEMs that are still around today and started working very closely with them, ultimately came up with a cast replacement component. Again, very simple. I, I was trying to find a part. It was so long ago. I, I couldn't. I looked back through success stories and documentation and we I don't have any pictures. I was probably snapping them on an actual camera back then, believe it or not. And, but it was a very simple, you know, piece of or, um, stock that came off of the bar stock that they cut, machined, had a couple of simple dog ears on, but it was also something that was used very widely across this organization. So we were trying to find out an answer to the last question of total ownership cost. Does this make sense or not? And it, this was new to everybody. Uh, so ultimately we went through executed a design of experiments, uh, proved it out, did mechanical testing required to meet the uh, engineering requirements or design requirements of the component, which we did have. But we had to go through everything. There was no draw. There was only 2D drawing. So something we still are faced with regularly today. And then again, back to my lack of experience, I didn't know how to take that. And I couldn't just hand it over to someone to print, which, you know, is 
part of this awareness that I'm sure we'll hit on as we talk through this. But, um, you know, we learned a lot. It was over the course of a few months. Ultimately, we're able to produce them, delivered a lot of them to the organization. They tested them out, used them, um, ultimately continued to do business case analysis in the background. It was determined since they were already doing it in-house, it was something that they preferred to keep in-house, even though schedules were a major obstacle. Um, it was, I don't know if it was too new or what, but you know, it, it is a real world example of something that happened 10 years ago that I'm sure is happening every day, still today around us, um, which is part of why we're all, I think here and, and some of the work that we're, we're working to do to try to grow people's awareness and educate them on how to use the tool more effectively. Yeah, that's such an interesting story uh, due to two factors. The factor number one to me is that it, it was 10 years ago, right? And we oftentimes have this discussion, should we wait? Is it too early for additive manufacturing? Mm -hmm. And I think the, the main answer is no, you should not wait because the experience that you and your organization made 10 years ago, you know, I think that's the, the most important part for that learning journey to close these knowledge gaps. And you can take as many trainings as you want, but you need to have that first hands-on experience to really, to really understand how to scale it from there and how to apply some, some of these learnings to the next generation of parts. Very interesting uh, uh, journey, John. Now, Stephanie, you, you similarly to John, started uh, a while back at Deutsche Bahn, which is the German railway organization. Um, can you share a little bit on about your first uh, parts that uh, you guys identified as the uh, as the Deutsche Bahn? Sure, I'm happy to do so. So, um, what uh, we've done um, um, was our first part was a part we couldn't get at the markets anymore. So this was a very simple one: an SLS printed part uh, from Polymer and simply a coat hanger. And as you can see, the train is very old, even older than I am. And uh, so uh, that was really a help. The next parts we printed were metal. And this is really crucial because we really had problems to convince our colleagues in the maintenance sites that 3D printing is a technology you can rely on. And it's not just something to print little Star Wars figurines. And um, so, for instance, we also did those uh, signs uh, for handrails for blind people uh, to comfort their orientation in train stations. Um, then just uh, two years after that, we even did the first safety relevant parts. And this is a huge metal part, 27 kilogram, going with a um, high-speed train, and that is uh, definitely safety relevant and it's made from 27 kilogram of steel. But uh, what might also be interesting, what did the other railway companies uh, throughout Europe um, did in their first parts? So this is a wheel set bearing cap of the Swedish colleagues, uh, the SJ. It's also a safety relevant part. And this is really interesting because uh, we did not start with prototypes like uh, the automotive colleagues did um, many years ago, we already started with spare parts and not the easy ones, but also the complicated ones. Um, our Dutch colleagues printed something which is very, very uh, common in rail. So holders, in this case for display or uh, also parts um, for uh, the air conditioning system or electronic parts, which you can see here from our Austrian colleagues. Um, something from the French uh, railway company is um, a part, a big part made of metal, um, which was not a standard tube. And uh, this was um, done in SLM technology. And um, what you can see is those are all not very typical um, AM parts. So design for AM is not a task of European railways. We want to replace existing spare parts and therefore we stick uh, to the design uh, we had before. Otherwise we have to prove on every part um, what it's like. But if you would like know, to know more about this, don't hesitate also to contact me. Thank you. Awesome, Stephanie. And I think that's a very interesting uh, comparison we can already make is that 
John's first part was a substitution based on uh, supply chain challenges uh, that uh, the organization had. Uh, your parts are very similar, also substitution parts uh, that uh, helped the uh, the railway companies to to keep their fleet uh, uh, running and in the end uh, reduce any uh, any fallouts uh, fallout costs if, if if trains would be would be falling out. So I think we can touch base on that in our uh, second. Uh, question, which uh, will then be, how do you now apply the learnings from your first parts uh, to the next generation of applications? Uh, so I definitely want to touch base on that again, but very interesting uh, parts that you just talked about. Now, Florian, you've also been in the additive manufacturing industry for uh, more than five years now. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, how your journey started and uh, what your first part was? Yeah, um, so I found my first part uh, like six years ago. And uh, compared to the other parts, uh, it was not in the supply chain. It was uh, kind of design innovation. So it was based on a new part. And it basically was a control device holder for an uh, electric super sport car. And uh, compared to the non-electric vehicle, uh, this control unit had to be placed uh, differently due to the uh, big battery package in the, in the car. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it was a very small series. That's why it was kind of the perfect um, part and example for additive manufacturing because, um, yeah, manufacturing a, a tool for injection molding for such a low number of parts uh, does not make sense. So it was a good use case for additive manufacturing to uh, manufacture that component. And so we optimized the design um, to, to cool this electric component. And we used the freedom of design with additive to um, yeah, also put some lightweight design there for that part. And so one of the biggest challenges was to find a suitable material um, which can um, yeah, be used uh, for the electrical and the, the, the heat um, properties we need to have there and uh, also to define the right orientation for an optimized assembly. And um, we first tried it out with uh, FDM and we saw some delamination in the assembly process. And that's why then later on we changed to uh, also SLS uh, polymer uh, process. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty good example, but I am also pretty much aware that uh, it was such a good example because of the very small uh, lot size of, of this part. Perfect, though, but because I mean, now now we also understand that it doesn't always have to start in your supply chain or in 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 substitution parts. It can also start in the R and D team, where there may be a challenge within the uh, a current project that is difficult to solve through conventional manufacturing. So I think really good three examples of uh, how to approach additive manufacturing. But it may seem a bit confusing to our audience out there. So what I want to talk about now is, you know, your first part was five years ago. Uh, your first part, Stephanie, was many years ago. And John's was even 10 years ago. And a lot has changed since then. A lot has changed from a technology perspective. Uh, a lot also has changed from uh, what we know and uh, how we now understand a little bit better on how to strategically approach the part identification and first proof of concept phase. So, um, Florian, if uh, if you would look back now and, you know, considering your current experience with additive manufacturing, how would you now approach a new additive manufacturing project for a company that hasn't approached additive manufacturing as a production technology yet? How would you how would you strategically approach uh, approach that sector? Yeah, so very good question. Um, we just heard that uh, you can find suitable parts in many, many uh, departments in your company. and uh, But it's actually a big challenge because you have to define where to start, uh, uh, where to look at first and how to find the uh, proper business cases here. And what I would like to uh, give our attendees as an advice is you have to scale AM uh, with your knowledge yeah so it goes hand in hand with your knowledge and i think that we saw uh, the typical um, first parts coming up from the prototyping um, environment and then very small series occurred 
And before like pushing into bigger series, yeah, and uh, if we look at the uh, part life cycle here, um, I would advise that next to the prototyping, uh, we also start looking in the, in the supply chain. Yeah? Um, start with single event parts and obsolete parts, uh, just as Stephanie mentioned, um, and then go step by step into a smaller unit production when you might have uh, yeah, minimum order quantity challenges in the end of the life cycle. And then step by step push uh, into the bigger series production uh, from both ends of the life cycle. So uh, that is kind of um, one advice I would give here. And so we can see that we have uh, a lot of relevant um, strategies. And I believe that the AM strategy has to be also relevant for the corporate strategy. Yeah? Even uh, so, either you want to save some costs in the production, or you want to increase the product offering to your customers. Then it might make sense to uh, also think about customized products uh, to have a better service. Um, or you are focusing on increasing, uh, for example, the uptime and the spare part supply. Then uh, we can also look at this. Um, but also think about the very low-hanging fruits, yeah, like uh, jigs and fixtures, uh, to fasten up the production itself and to make life easier for uh, the guys in the assembly line. Um, so it has to fit to the corporate strategy, uh, I believe. And then basically, I would advise to combine top-down and the bottom-up approach to to look for parts. And what do I mean with that? Uh, top-down basically says, okay, look at the whole inventory and try to define a framework um, how to look for parts and you can also use for example three or mine software to to look for those application and on the same hand side also uh, look from the bottom yeah empower your employees uh, to hand in ideas for 3d printing and mm -hmm. enable them uh, to to find proper use cases and uh, I strongly believe that you have to open this uh, funnel uh, of ideas to um, yeah, turn that into reality. And uh, I think that's a very good point to hand over also to Stephanie because uh, this bottom-up approach um, was perfectly done also by the Deutsche Bank. Yeah, so we definitely had the problem. We wanted to do a strategic analysis and uh, in a top-down approach. And uh, the problem was that we didn't have the figures and dates we needed to decide whether a part is printable or not. And this is when we thought uh, we will fail with a, a pure and only top-down approach. And then uh, was the time when we decided to do a roadshow through our maintenance uh, sites and talk to our colleagues. And then one year later, um, we um, thought there are so many people who already had contact with additive manufacturing, usually in their private life. Some of them even develop printers on their own or with their children. And um, so we uh, decided to start an employee competition. And that employee competition, we also used uh, this uh, software for. And in the first um, year, we even got um, 70 great um, uh, ideas from our colleagues. And uh, yeah, this was uh, the beginning um, of um, putting it more into the corporate, bringing the ideas and the technology in the hands and minds of people and uh, gaining great ideas from them. Really good insights from, from both of you. I, I really... I strongly believe that both approaches are necessary. You need a top-down, not necessarily a top-down push, but you need top uh, executive buy-in to, to push these additive manufacturing initiatives forward. I think that really helps, uh, especially the, uh, the engineering teams, uh, to push these projects that may sometimes have a longer lead time uh, forward without having to report uh, very short-term uh, short results. On the other hand, I believe also uh, what you said, Stephanie, uh, the, the the team on the ground that really knows the challenges and knows the applications best, they need to have uh, that experience and they need to have the the ability to uh, to push additive manufacturing forward. Now, John, you have such a long time of additive manufacturing experience, and you've you know uh, as we discussed earlier, you you've seen it grow uh, from ten years ago to now. What are some 
what is some advice that you would give to uh, to the audience out there on on how to implement additive manufacturing into their into their supply and value chains? Thanks. Yeah, I think both uh, the previous speakers just talked to some of the multiple dimensions that additive manufacturing presents to us. So if I'm if I'm sitting in the the role of a COO or you know a a manufacturer who's trying to produce my next set of widgets. You know, there's there's lots to think about and there's lots of different approaches that you can ultimately take. And it depends a lot on where you are in the in the value chain or, you know, where or I guess rather where you are in the supply chain. You know, do you own the designs? You ultimately have authority to produce new designs where you can be considering additive. You know, that may take you down a different journey. If you are a supplier that feeds up through, you know, a tier two or three of a supply chain, you know, how do you create awareness in your organization, one, on the technology, and then two, to share between your organization upward, so up through to the OEMs and system integrators so they understand, because oftentimes those folks who operate in tier two and three, they understand their individual products really well. And, and how they're used. And maybe the folks who are ultimately putting the pieces together don't understand it as well. So there, there has to be a open relationship there. So we've seen, you know, lots of different approaches here. Um, you know, we, we regularly take the, or encourage, I'll say, people to just jump in, you know, just start doing something, you know, buy desktop printers for your people, whether they're your maintenance folks or your operators or your team leaders, depending on the type of organization you have or engineering group, encourage them to start to understand the, the tools. We And we want to make sure they understand they are tools and they are not for toys. And I think that's something we're constantly fighting. Um, we all see it. We all understand how it has the potential and is today making a difference. We've seen it over the past year, how it has addressed supply chain shortages due to pandemic response and, you know, across not just for, you know, PPE, but across a variety of different supply chain issues that we saw. It's a real technology that we can all use, but we need everyone to have a better understanding and, and greater awareness on where to use it. So, you know, we, we've, we've seen, like I started to say, many, many different on ramps to the technology. Um, one really interesting example of a local organization here, to, you know, where in my my neck of the woods uh, is a contract manufacturer. They're somebody a large contract manufacturer. There, they have five, probably seven hundred employees. Very conventional. They're a machine shop. They do post processing, coding. Um, you know, stress relief, all those kinds of things we all understand very well um, in the conventional world. They see that they're, you know, they, they've got a couple of folks who started to become educated in the technology. So they've become the champions, you know, so they, they're growing it internally. But you've got to, as, as Stephanie, or as both of the previous speakers talked, you know, it, it takes that top down and bottom up. You, you need to convince the people at the top, which is often not that difficult because they think it is, you know, everyone's hearing about the technology. So we've got that going for us. We've got to avoid the hype, which we've been pretty good at over the last couple of years. That's died down and we've we've delivered. So that, that's been very helpful. But, you know, we've got to think about, you know, once we have interest, how do we, how do we take the next step? You know, whether that's teaming up with somebody, you know, whether it's a consultancy group, or a university, you know, figure out how to partner with somebody to help raise the awareness and capability within your organization. And then, as, as Florian said, you know, we're simple things like introducing tools for jigs and fixtures. It, it can really get people's attention and it can start to save time, which then saves money, which then gets other people excited about the technology. And I think one thing I know, I'll say myself and others in our positions sometimes overlook is because we know this and we absolutely understand and have seen countless case studies, we just think everyone's got it figured out. And that is absolutely not the case. You know, when I go out and talk to, you know, I live in an area where there are many contract, you know, traditional contract manufacturers. 
If I walked into most of those shops, I guarantee you they would not know what I'm talking about or wouldn't know that I could make a bearing cover that was part of a, a, a safety critical component for a rail system. They would think that I have a Yoda that is on my desk that my kid made that has my name on it. And that's really cool. That's not that cool, really. Um, so it's 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 this process of getting people aware and growing, you know, growing the community. I couldn't agree more and I couldn't underline that more. I think <laughs> partnerships and education are really a key to success here, right? I mean, elephant manufacturing. It's a complex process chain, not just the 3D printing itself, but if you consider post-processing and uh, the front end on the data preparation side, you need people to understand that full process chain. And as of today, there is there's a war of talent in additive manufacturing. It's not cheap or easy to hire somebody with a lot of experience. So you have to develop your people. And the only way to develop people is by giving them access to the technology, but also working together with educational institutes uh, to either educate your own people or, uh, you know, get some people out of the uh, universities that grew up with digital manufacturing technology, actually learned about 3D printing uh, in their studies and have that mindset on how to approach uh, additive manufacturing. Uh, very, very interesting, uh, John. So, all right, now we, we talked about how do you approach your first, uh, your first parts? How do you educate your, your team? But if, of course, it doesn't stop with the first part, right? The real impact comes once you you scale out of manufacturing across various sectors of your organization. And one company who has really done a, a, a super successful job here is the Deutsche Bahn. And uh, Stephanie, you mentioned to me uh, previously that as of today, the Deutsche Bahn has printed more than 25,000 uh, parts additively. Now... How did you get there? How did you move from a coat hanger to 25,000 parts? Um, so what you have to do is talk, talk, talk. You have to um, convince people that it is a technology which can be taken seriously. And um, so in my opinion, it's uh, more a change management project than a technological one. And um, yeah, so, and this is not just within Deutsche Bahn the case. Um, it's throughout the companies and corporates I know. And uh, this is something I can just uh, tell you and advise you. You really have to take those people by the hand and lead them into the um, additive manufacturing direction. And we set up um, also um, trainings, not only for the engineers, but also from people from procurement and uh, marketing and uh, many different um, departments because if you really spread the word then you get those people who are already enthusiastic about the technology and I mentioned it before you will find diamonds in your organization you have never ever thought about because they have a private printer already at home but usually you don't know that and you have to get your hands on those people and ask this is what we did Usually you would ask when you start a project like that, you would go to your CTOs and ask, please send me some of your engineers or experts. And we did it in a different way. We asked for people who are really enthusiastic and who want to work with and for this technology. So uh, from different levels of hierarchy, hierarchy does not play any role um, in our project. And uh, this really helped to get those people who really love the technology, who are pioneers and who want to um, um, yeah, push that technology forward. Very, 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 uh, very interesting. And uh, I think one thing that we, uh, that we also have to talk about is uh, qualification. And there, is some, there are some questions here in the chat as well. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you qualify a product um, how do you also uh, substitute a product from conventional manufacturing to uh, additive manufacturing? So, uh, John, you, you've already previously talked a bit about, you know, how to move from, from legacy parts to new designs. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how have you seen, how you have seen companies scale in their uh, number of applications and volume of 3D printed applications? Yes, absolutely. I, I think that it, it's different. Um, you know, whether it's a 
you know, if it's a safety critical component or something that you're using as a jigger fixture, it's, it's obvious that those are those are very different sets of requirements. And then whether it's a new design where you've introduced some complexity that you couldn't otherwise get, or it's a replacement component for something that we can't get because of a supply chain problem, they, they all face these different challenges. One of them that we cannot overlook is the, spa- the space of specification and standards. So one of the things that we have, you know, we've been working on at the Institute and there's, there's many organizations working on these types of things that without standards in place, it becomes difficult to scale these, these tools. Even if you're able to prove in, in low volume that it's possible, that doesn't necessarily mean, um, to Stephanie's point, that that someone, in, an acquisition professional, can actually purchase it, or if they know how to purchase it, or they know what this thing is that they they for some reason, in some cases, treat additive very differently than they convi- than they treat conventionally manufactured components, and in some cases, that's needed because of you know how we you know combine material and process in many of our processes. But you know the the only way to really move. Uh, forward in that is to get involved. So as we build these enthusiasts and we have organizations who understand the potential, we've got to get those people engaged with the standards development organizations to make sure most of most of what we have today in the conventional space and what we're generating in the additive space, they're all based on uh, consensus-based standards. So that only works when we come together and work on it. So we've we've got to put energy in. I know we we very actively are working on that. We've we've developed a, a standards roadmap that has identified a series of different gaps that exist across many different thrust areas. And we need people to identify those targets and then go work on those. At that point, you know, it's when it starts to get really interesting for supply chain partners. And we we've proven that it works. I mean, the the examples that Stephanie gave. You know, we we have a separate program for aging aircraft within the U.S. military services that took a very similar approach. You know, there there are many components, critical and not, that we could identify. Then it became. Then we got to the challenge of how do I know this one's okay? You know, how do I? How am I comfortable in, in purchasing them? How do I even? How do I write a contract up? You know, those are the things that start to get really interesting as you go down to that tier two and tier three supplier. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know that Florian will hit on this or not, but when you start to think about the digital thread and how to push information around and make sure it's flowing, not even to mention that it's secure, um, you know, how do we get those folks educated? That's what it's going to take to really scale this. Um, we, all, we all understand that um, we've got many things going for us, but we've got to keep, you know, keep focused, keep coordinated, um, not trip over one another and, and keep moving forward. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think th- there's there's two messages to, to the audience out there. The message one is uh, standards are, are critical and there already are standards out there. I believe uh, ASDM has released more than 60 standards as of today uh, on additive manufacturing is working on many more. Uh, and the second message is, get involved into the standardization committees, right? If you're out there and you're working on additive manufacturing parts, don't wait for the committees to release standards, get involved and help them to push and also get your ideas into into those processes. Yeah, and sorry to butt in, but yes, because it, it is important that you bring those real world examples because the standards bodies don't create parts, they don't generate data. They rely on data from the community in order to work. So you can't hold on to it or nobody gets, you know, we, we just don't move as quickly as we all dream to if we don't come together on this. Exactly, exactly. And and Stephanie, I know that uh, the uh, MGA is also uh, working on, on collecting standards. How are you guys approaching that? Yeah, so um, we try to push um, all those standard things because we know exactly if we don't have the standards, we can't accelerate and enhancing the number of printed parts. And uh, this is why we founded also um, a working group which uh, deals with the approval of uh, printed parts in rails, so safety relevant parts. And uh, this is uh, a long work and it's not um, always sexy, but you have to do this. And John just described it perfectly. You need that um, basic work. And uh, now we are just um, 
ahead of uh, um, getting the ERA, the European Rail Agency, so already on an international, on a European level, into our activities and um, to prove that a printed part is as reliable as another part in former technologies. And this is what we have to prove first. And therefore, we have to create the standards. You just mentioned it. And the more people who are really interested in those standards and work and push that, the easier, faster um, it gets for everyone. And um, But not only in rail, also in other sectors, uh, that's definitely relevant. So as, as soon as you're not sticking to the prototypes, um, um, you have to work on those standards together. At Deutsche Bahn, we don't own any own printers, or at least no industrial printers. We have desktop ones. So we decided to rely 100% on printing service bureaus. And not only the Deutsche Bahn, also the other European railways uh, do it the same. So uh, we established an audit system in cooperation with a body um, like the TUV suit um, who can do the audits for us and to prove that those printing service bureaus are reliable and are capable of printing spare parts. And that really now helps and it's not dedicated to rail. It's a general one um, to, um, yeah, um, try to find out whether the printing service bureau is capable of printing spare parts or not. That's such important work. Right. Establishing that supply chain and maturing that additive manufacturing supply chain, uh, uh, which you guys are doing by, A, of course, outsourcing your parts and your production uh, to these contract manufacturers, but also establishing standards on how to qualify and incorporate those, those contract manufacturers into your OEM or into your uh, quality management system, I think is super, super important for the growth of the industry. Now, Florian, you've you've seen additive manufacturing from an OEM perspective at a automotive uh, company. You've seen additive manufacturing from a consulting perspective, where for four years or more you uh, worked at Additive Minds and uh, helped customers from the very early stage of an idea all the way into production. And now you're uh, at Three of Mind and you see the the software backend and the digital thread backend of additive manufacturing. What's your advice to companies out there who now, maybe have a few parts already, but they want to scale up. Yeah, um, maybe just to pick the thought up. Um, I think it's great to see that we have more and more industries collaborating uh, on those standardized uh, approaches, yeah, and the material qualification and the process qualification and so on. So what I saw that it was for a long, very long time kind of a chicken and egg problem, um, especially the relationship between the OEM and the tier one or tier two supplier. And uh, it's so great to see that we have uh, the, the railway industry or the aerospace industry or oil and gas uh, collaborating uh, on those challenges. And what I also do see is that not only the OEM and its tier structure is involved there, but also material manufacturers, uh, the machine vendors, uh, and also software companies uh, collaborating together with the end customer of how to push those parts through the digital threat and also who takes the responsibility for the qualification and uh, the manufacturing itself. So that's kind of what I wanted to say here. Um, and next to it, uh, next to this external framework, I think it is also important to set up an internal framework uh, within your company yeah, that you have kind of a key point of contact uh, to ask um, regarding additive to kind of have a internal platform where you provide and exchange knowledge um, and uh, this department has to basically lead the enablement um, pushing additive uh, into the into the company and also setting the framework in terms of okay what kind of material can you use as a designer how reliable is the technology and to basically Take away, take away this uh, this fear, especially from uh, yeah, functions like designers and quality engineers um, to to use that technology. Yeah, so that's uh, I think also a very important part. And uh, yeah, next to that, establish kind of a thought, uh, well thought out positioning of additive within the corporate strategy. 
and uh, as John mentioned, build that partner network uh, around your own goal. Um, and maybe to say, uh, in the end of the day, I think additive is one of the few industries really seeking for for use cases. Yeah. So again, like open that funnel and uh, try to get as many ideas as possible, uh, also from your employees um, to to use that awesome technology. And uh, yeah, at this point again, uh, I think this 3D printing contest uh, at Deutsche Bahn uh, for me was uh, a very good example. And uh, Stephanie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you now go into the third uh, round of uh, that contest already, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's already um, now in the middle um, of the time we want to spend on this uh, contest or competition. And uh, what we can see from year to year, and this year it's already the third time, um, we see an enhancement of the quality of those ideas. And um, so, again, change management. You have to give the whole technology a bit time. So people have to understand, they have to try to think about their problems and challenges. Then they have to find the right solution. And um, it takes a couple of years. Um, but if you don't get started, you will never finish. And the good news is if you want to start with additive manufacturing, you don't have to, pry to buy a printer immediately because uh, sometimes that's really an investment. But you can also rely on experts. And there are um, a lot of them out there and also especially here in this uh, podium. And um, get your help. Yeah? So, um, but if you have the first ideas, start with them. And uh, sorry, just a last uh, sentence. Uh, we often talk about the maker scene and the maker scene does one thing which I really appreciate. They make some things. And um, this is what I mean. Get started and start doing and making. That is a very important topic. And I think what's interesting is that I've now seen many, many additive manufacturing projects start, uh, whether if it's in uh, tier one or tier two suppliers, whether if it's in in OEMs. And I think what's interesting and what should not be underestimated is the power of organizational complexity and the challenge of overcoming internal obstacles. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Because I've seen so many companies struggle because there's one person oftentimes in a senior management position who doesn't believe in that manufacturing and shuts down a project. How do I overcome that? Maybe looking to you, Stephanie. I think you uh, you have you you have had to convince, uh, I'm sure, many many engineers or uh, uh, technical people out there. How did you do that? Yeah. yeah. So um, I was just thinking: uh, was there anybody who wanted to shut down our project so far? No. And um, maybe um, they didn't want to be stopped by me. I don't know. But um, I think um, if you're on a C level logic most of them really like the thought and usually the sea level is the easiest to convince in my experience because if you give them the first printed parts in hand and the whole technology is so haptic that's a huge advantage yeah and as soon as they can really feel with their hands printed parts usually that helps a lot not only on the sea level logic also below and um, you should use that and just get your hands on printed parts and uh, reach them out even if those are not your own parts and um, yeah on the other hand you have to convince people and you just can do this by proving that that's a technology you can rely on and uh, you have you, we already talked about standards and so on but um, the, the good thing is um, try to find those people who would really love to um, develop the technology in um, um, in a joint approach with you and a cooperation and don't focus always on those people who don't want to have this logic. So this is something maybe also very typical German thing. We always focusing a lot on uh, people who see risks and who don't want to do anything and don't want to push anything. Focus more on your strengths and people who really love the technology and want to push that. And then you get the right energy uh, to push the whole technology in your corporate or company forward. John, you're, you're laughing. Just, uh, no, I, yeah. Did you experience that? 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Some. Um, I, I think my my simple thought on this is it's really easy for people to give you the reasons why it's not going to work or we can't do it or I've done it for twenty years. I mean, I the that happens in you know <laughs> in all technology. Something new has come out. It, it's you have to prove it to them. So this, you know, we we've walked through a series of different case studies that we've all experienced and have proven out. And, and sometimes that you've done it or you've seen it somewhere to be able to bring that in front of them and show them. And and you know, I think some sometimes it's maybe the other end of the extreme where they see it. To Stephanie's point, is everyone gets so excited. And we're going to solve all the world's problems with this, you know, printed widget that I saw. So why can't we do that? Why aren't we making a thousand of them? You know, whatever the numbers are. And, you know, there's there's uh, some reality you have to overlay, but you've got to give them a reason to say, you know, not be able to say no at the end of the day. And, and to me, I've always used this term, speak with data, you know, put something in front of them with data to back it up and prove it to them and then move on to the next person. And with that, you'll you'll build your army and, you know, get to the point where you can, you know, get folks behind you. It's no different than building a team for anything. You know, you just got to, you, you have to take the right data to the, to the fight. Perfect ending to a great episode. Um, give people a reason to not say no and build your additive manufacturing army. Thank you, uh, John. Thank you, Stephanie. And thank you, Florian, for all your insights that you provided. And that was it for the uh, special episode of the 3D Friday talk show and uh, the new Additive Manufacturing Podcast, Additive Snack. Uh, for the 3D Friday talk show, please tune in next time, every last Friday of the month. And for Additive Snack, please subscribe and listen to our previous episodes and the upcoming episodes of season two, wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, Thanks for being with us today and have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, bye. Mate. Stephanie, John, and Florian, I really appreciate you joining us today and sharing your insights. And I'm hoping that this episode can help you out there to get your additive manufacturing journey off to a great start. On the next episode, I'll be joined by Mohsen Saifi, the Director of Global Manufacturing at ASTM. And we'll talk about another vital topic in the additive manufacturing world. One that almost everybody's talking about. We'll discuss the landscape of additive manufacturing standards. How standards can not only help you to move into a qualified additive manufacturing production environment faster, but also why it can help you to get ahead of your market competitors. We'll even discuss how you can shape the future of additive manufacturing by taking an active role in developing standards. So be sure to subscribe to Additive Snack and leave a comment on the podcast platform of your choice and stay on top of future episodes as they're released. Until next time, I'm Fabian Alefeld. Thank you for listening to Additive Snack. For this episode, a special thanks goes out to my co-producers, Kristen Eisminger, Tim Moynihan, and to Shannon Bauch for graphic design and social media management.